This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, lessons from Russia's history and what it tells us about Moscow's strategy in Ukraine. Then, the Navy plans to develop uncrewed robot ships. We look at what that means for a potential conflict in the Pacific. And the White House authorizes more sophisticated weapons to Ukraine as Putin warns of consequences. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. History doesn't always repeat itself, but it does offer some lessons. So as policymakers try to understand Putin's next moves in Ukraine, we'll take a look back at some recent Russian history. Ron Marks is a former CIA official, currently a professor at George Mason University and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Ron, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So your op-ed, you say this, that Moscow's whole approach has been um, textbook 1980s KGB and Soviet military standard issue. How so? Well, it's really been sort of a sad case of watching the kind of brutality that went on in both Afghanistan and then later on in the tens in Chechnya. There's a different approach here. You know, we're very casually adverse. By and large, we go out of our way to avoid civilian casualties. And I realize there have been exceptions to that over the years, and I understand that. That is not the way these guys work. And the idea of terrorizing a population to control it, uh, the idea of being able to engage uh, in a kind of sort of in-your-face kind of approach to the battle, uh, using weapons like barrel bombs, using, using IEDs of one form or another to kill the local population, as well as the soldiers. Um, you know, I, again, it matches Afghanistan perfectly. Uh, we saw that there. And the casualty as well, we're casually adverse. They took 17,000 casualties in Afghanistan. Uh, during the period they were in there. And you can I, see it right I now, I wanted too. to ask you about that, because they have historically, even going back to World War II, endured a tremendous amount of casualties. So is the Russian government not really phased by high casualty rates? No, no. And, and in particular, you have a leadership now, especially in Putin, who grew up during that period of time. He's a baby boomer. Uh, I won't say to you, but he's like me. I mean, he grew up in the mid-50s and 60s. He grew up with the legends of the great sacrifices of the great patriotic war of their World War II. And so when you lose 20 million people in a war, as they did, um, you know, you don't really associate that small level of casualty with that kind of pain. So you're willing to go in and you're willing to sacrifice your people, again, in ways that we are not. We are casually averse in this country. They are not. And so I'm sure to him, while 20,000 is quite a hit, and that seems to be what the number is, um, you know, you're really going to have to inflict a much larger level of pain on him before you see him begin to pull back. How effective, Ron, is Putin's control over his population? I mean, can he just cut off the Internet and all of a sudden nobody knows what's going on in Ukraine? He's done a wonderful job. Uh, you know, you don't run a dictatorship for 500 years in a country, you know, with some minor exceptions there, and not know how to control internal information. Uh, he's an old KGB guy. He knows how to get information out there. He knows how to present a story. He has people that are doing it. The Internet is fairly well sealed off at this point. That doesn't mean you can't get through. But for the most part, the message that he's sending at home, and people are believing it, uh, is that there's a good patriotic reason to go into Ukraine, that there are Nazis there. They were attempting to control this infestation. 
uh, and they're willing to sacrifice to do that. And that is a message that they very strongly believe and many of their allies believe. How does Moscow view the economic sanctions against them? I always tell people, and this is from someone who's got a couple degrees in economics, that economics is a chronic illness, but it's very rarely a fatal one. Um, they can work their way around it. And, and I realize that they're, they're quite symbolic and they are painful in the sense of it's a bit of a nuisance to have your yacht taken away. But the fact of the matter is that the, that the families and others, you know, these are people who are worth in the tens of billions of dollars that they've gone after. Putin's probably worth a hundred billion dollars. They, they can figure out how to get the But haven't around. those sanctions trickled down to the regular people? I'm, I'm sure. I mean, these well, are oil it. and gas embargoes. That's the unfortunate part. And we saw it with Saddam Hussein and we've seen it with others whom we've attempted to box out. It's never the leadership that gets hit. It's always the population. And, and when you hurt them in their pocketbooks and they can't get access to the things that they used to, be ac used to be able to get access to, doesn't that start to shift the narrative? You would hope it would, but I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things that you notice about control in dictatorships is the ability to control that information to isolate those people who begin to protest. And you've seen it in Moscow and elsewhere, where there are people who've been protested, they've been busted on the streets. This is a real police state. This has been well-developed. You know, Putin is an expert at it. He grew up in it. The people that are doing it, I mean, he's no fool about this. They know what's happening. So we've talked about Russian history. What does Western history say about how to win this war? We've got to gut this one out. And by that, I mean get the arms in there. And you've seen the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense in there today. This is a matter of training. This is a matter of, of showing uh, that we're willing to put weaponry in there quickly. Uh, and, and also, frankly, sustain ourselves. I mean, we, this is going to be a long war. I think, you know, Americans are sort of like the idea of, well, we're going to get this over in 90 days. We'll bring the, hoops, the troops home by Christmas. That's all lovely, but that's not what this is about. This is a war of attrition, and we're really going to have to dig into this thing and continue to support and continue to support loudly and push hard because, frankly, unless the Russians see that, they're not going to back off. As a, as a CIA guy, what, what are the chances of Putin being ousted from power? There are two ways Russian leaders leave power. Uh, one is you hear funeral music on the radio, and television, I think it's Swan Lake, if memory serves me right, because it would calm the population. And the second one is someone goes knocking on the door of the office and says, Nikita or Sergei or Vladimir, we need to talk. And they leave that way. And that's been the history throughout. Uh, even Boris Yeltsin was sort of pushed out the door. So unless the people immediately around him, and they won't be the oligarchs, it'll be the military and the intelligence guys that finally say, look, we can't do this anymore, and push him out. That's the only way that's going to happen. Well, the, we'll continue to watch this and hoping for the Ukrainian people that this ends quickly. Most but definitely. Thank you, Ron, so much for being on the program. You're welcome. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the Navy's plans for unmanned drone ships mean for the future of warfare. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Navy wants to develop robot ships over the next few years and use artificial intelligence to replace sailors in battle. To discuss the plan and potential pitfalls is Tom Shugart. He's a senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security and a former submarine warfare officer for the U.S. Navy. Tom, welcome. Thanks, Mamie. Great to be here. So briefly spell out the benefits of autonomous ships for us. 
Well, I think there's a, there's kind of both pull and push factors that are at work here uh, in in the Navy's drive to, to deploy autonomous ships. From the pull perspective, there's technological advancements that have allowed these sorts of developments to go forward, autonomy, AI, uh, remote control, satellite communications, et cetera. But certainly a lot of what this is about is about China and that you've got a push in the form of the threat from the PLA Navy and in particular the PLA Rocket Force. You have an entire branch of the Chinese military that's developed anti-ship ballistic missiles that threaten the carriers that are have traditionally been the centerpiece of U.S. power projections. So there's an effort afoot to distribute the ships that we have to make them more difficult to hit and have them be able to attack from more numerous vectors. So there's a drive there uh, to do that. There's also just the scale of the threat from China requires the development of lower cost uh, alternatives to be able to provide the necessary uh, capabilities at a cost that's affordable within what look like maybe flat budgets for some time. So Tom, what kind of naval missions will these ships be used for? What, what would they actually be doing? I think the book's pretty wide open uh, on the longer term. In the shorter term, I think what we're most likely to see are adjunct missile magazines essentially to expand the number of missiles that our uh, surface forces could carry and also sensors. So I think in, on the scale of the ships you're looking at, the larger end ships would be carrying more missiles, uh, probably operating in company with uh, manned ships, which might make it easier uh, to make that happen, uh, although potentially independently as well. Uh, and then on the smaller end, I think you're looking at more sensors. Uh, you know, we have an example here from the Ukraine uh, conflict where I think that it's pretty good odds that a Ukrainian a UAV provided targeting for the coastal defense cruise missile that sank the Moskva. So there's a potential example of an unmanned system providing uh, sensor inputs for long range weapon systems. And I can see that sort of thing happening as well with smaller ships that are deployed further forward where they might be under greater threat uh, and might be better to use an unmanned platform to provide that sensor input for our larger ships. But how practical is it to be able to carry out missions, especially if something goes wrong without a crew? Well, I mean, there are going to be risks that have to be taken in order to make this happen. Uh, and I think, you know, there's there was a recent GAO report that talked about uh, some of the technological risks and programmatic risks associated with unmanned systems and certainly anything new that you're going to deploy uh, is going to have some risks associated with it. But what I think we have to keep in mind are that um, not taking those sort of risks anymore with the threat, the scale of the challenge and the threat we have from China uh, may not be an option. I mean, you can turn down the programmatic and technological risks if you want, but you're just going to make the operational risk with China go up uh, commensurately. So uh, there's for sure going to be some technological challenges and things that, that will need to be done that we haven't done before. So what's the plan for deployment and how far along is the Navy in operationalizing these unmanned ships? It's still pretty early days, I believe. I mean, I, I think they're, they're still doing, they have done a number of exercises and there's more exercises ongoing. Uh, from the development perspective, most of the surface vessels are in, uh, essentially all the, the vessels that we're talking about are largely in the prototyping phase. Um, we're not at rate, you know, any kind of uh, full production uh, at this point. so. There's still development happening, and that's that's the way it's going to need to be. I think we're probably at sort of a putting the airplane together while it flies sort of a point at this point. And you know, you mentioned China and their capabilities. Do we know anything about? Um, are they pursuing these kinds of plans? Do we know what their capability is in unmanned ships? There's been some open source discussion and pictures uh, of 
some very small unmanned ships. I have not seen anything of them pursuing anything as large as what the our Navy is uh, appearing to develop. There's also been some open source, um, well, ostensibly civilian development of unmanned uh, undersea vehicles by Chinese organizations. And the thing we have to remember about, about them is that, you know, China is all about military civil fusion. So if it looks like it's civilian and it could have uh, military applications, we might as well assume it's at the service of the state. Um, so at, at the open source level, it's tough to tell exactly what they're working on, but they are working on something on, on a, essentially every angle. And would these ships, Tom, fire weapons autonomously? I mean, because that's obviously going to raise some ethical issues. So there are uh, DOD, there's DOD regulation that requires, has pretty strict limits on how much uh, lethal autonomous systems can do. Uh, essentially, there has to be some sort of human interaction uh, in order uh, for them to be deployed. Uh, I think what we'll see, you know, there's a lot of options. Uh, there's man in the loop where you've got a, a human what that's that's taking part in decision making. Uh, then you have man on the loop, which is someone observing what an autonomous system is doing and stepping in where necessary. True autonomy right now is, uh, I believe, beyond what DOD regulations allow. Uh, I think we're going to be challenged over time, though, as you know, we know for a fact that that one of the PLA's greatest uh, points of interest in warfare is disrupting communications uh, and affecting the systems that we use to, to do command and control. So if we are depending upon links to make these systems work, uh, that's going to be a real challenge. And quickly, Tom, is there a plan for unmanned submarines? Uh, a development of unmanned undersea vehicles is certainly underway. The, the Navy has multiple sizes, uh, large, medium, and then XL UUV. XL UUV is essentially a 80 or so foot long uh, unmanned diesel electric submarine, essentially. Um, it has, I, I think I think the initial uh, planned mission is most likely going to be, um, I, you know, I, reconnaissance and mining. Uh, you know, that's, which seems, that seems pretty doable to me. You know, go to a designated place, drop off designated things and come back. All right, uh, Tom, well, we're out of time, form. but thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Mimi. Coming next, the U.S. is sending more sophisticated weapons to Ukraine. What that could change on the ground. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Russia has warned the United States that arms shipments to Ukraine could bring, quote, unpredictable consequences. This comes as the administration authorizes the delivery of more sophisticated weapons than in previous shipments. Ryan Evans is the founder of War on the Rocks and CEO of Metamorphic Media. Ryan, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Before we talk about specifics um, about the weapons themselves, how is the fight going to be different in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region than what we've seen before? Yeah, the war has definitely entered a new phase. Uh, Putin's opening military strategy was frankly disastrous, uh, trying to fight on too many fronts. All of those fronts poorly supported except arguably the south and the east. Uh, and so he's consolidating his effort towards the east in Donbass and trying to say that this is what he was trying to do all along. But this really makes it more of a war of attrition that is focused much more on a specific area of Ukraine's geography. 
So uh, some people will be reminded when they see imagery coming out of this next phase of the fight of things that were happening in the world wars in terms of the intensity and the way troops are positioned and the way certain weapon systems are being used. And why is taking control of the Donbass region so strategically important to the Russians? I think it's really Putin trying to salvage something out of the wreckage of this disastrous war, because this war, no matter how this next phase ends, will be a disaster for Russia. So Putin, it's important for him to say, well, we pulled the Donbass out of it. And that's actually what we were trying to do all the time, he'll say, but that's of course not true. But the Donbass is where the fighting happened in 2014, of course, after Euromaidan, when Ukraine uh, democratically ousted its dictatorial leader, who was close to Moscow, who had killed protesters. And that's when Moscow, with uh, back Russian-backed separatists, took control of parts of the Donbass. And now he wants to take the whole thing. So part of the latest military aid package includes howitzers. Describe those and how the Ukrainians would use them. These are basically large cannons, uh, to just to simplify totally. And it's not just the United States giving them, but uh, other European countries are looking at giving them as well. And these are large artillery pieces that are going to be useful uh, for this sort of war of attrition where there's a recognizable front line and where forces are being pushed back. And it's crucial for Ukraine to have these weapon systems because Russia has a lot of them. Russia is short on people but has a lot of kit. It has a lot of artillery and a lot of munitions, and that's what Ukraine lacks right now. So for Ukraine to protect its own forces from artillery, it needs artillery of its own. There are uh, 300 switchblade drones 11 MI-17 helicopters that President Zelensky specifically asked for in the package. What will they be able to do in Ukraine? The switchblade drones are interesting. Well, basically, these are called loitering munitions, and they're different from drones. They're actually more like missiles. Uh, they're one-time, one-use. You, 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 you use it, you lose it. Uh, they are fired either from a tube or some other system, and they're launched into the air. They find a target, and they detonate on it. Uh, there are two different kinds of switchblades. It's unclear which ones the United States has actually sent to Ukraine. There's the 300 model and the 600 model. The 600 model is the really valuable one. It's bigger, it has some more range, but more importantly, it could take out tanks, which is what Ukraine really needs right now. As far as the helicopters, I'm not sure what their practical use in battle is going to be. I think Zelensky's been pursuing a sort of throw the spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks in terms of what he's been asking for, for understandable reasons, that's not a criticism. But it's not clear to me how useful these helicopters are going to be. Well, I mean, you know, you say asking for everything. I wonder why we didn't send these to begin with. Why didn't we start with these kinds of weapons? Um, the Ukrainians have been asking for them for a long time. I think for two reasons. Uh, one is, is that frankly, the United States uh, expected Ukraine to fall much quicker than it did. Uh, second, uh, these weapons were not as useful for the sort of war that Ukraine was fighting up until now. So. Uh, whereas before Russian forces were spread out over vast stretches of Ukraine, the, the, the key was to deny Russia air superiority and to give Ukraine the ability to take out tanks. And for that, we provided lots of different systems, but uh, most prominently, of course, Javelin anti-tank missiles, which have been used to great effect by the Ukrainians, as well as a variety of different anti-air systems, most of them man-portable, which just means a person can carry them around, that have been really effective in denying Russia air superiority. So those were the right weapons for the right time in the fight. And now that the nature of the fight is changing, new weapons are required by Ukraine if it is to continue to be successful in this war and drive Russia out of the rest of Ukraine. You know, initially there was a lot of talk about uh, fear of escalation with Russia, and we can't send certain weapons because that might be seen as escalatory. Do you think that those, that those initial fears were uh, unjustified in, in hindsight? So I have no, you know, 
special insight into the administration's thinking on this. I just know what I've read in the press, just like you and just like many of your listeners. But my view on this is the escalation risk was less about which kinds of weapons were getting sent to Ukraine, but how they were getting there. So, for example, there was a big hullabaloo over the MiG-29, which is a Soviet-era aircraft that Poland had some of and wanted to give to Ukraine, but didn't want to take the risk on by themselves to give it to Ukraine. Because, of course, that would involve at some point probably uh, Ukrainian pilots flying them uh, from Polish territory into Ukraine to fight a war, which could be used as Russia saying, hey, you're using NATO territory to launch attacks on Russian troops, which makes NATO countries a belligerent in this war. That's why Poland wanted to offload that risk on the United States and wanted the United States to give them to uh, Ukraine from Germany. So in my opinion, it's less about what these weapons are, but how we get them to Ukraine and into the fight. Uh, but I don't know the nature of the administration's thinking on this. And in the 30 seconds we've got left, how does this end, Ryan? I don't know. I think that either Russia will be able to get its act together and either hold on to the Donbass or even open up a front again north of Kiev. That's my greatest fear, that they're able to open up, reopen that front up more effectively north of Kiev and drive towards the capital again. But hopefully Ukraine is able to drive Russia from every last inch of Ukrainian territory. Uh, we'll see. All right, Ryan, appreciate you being on the program. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to 
um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.